Hey there, welcome to the Move Smart Podcast. I'm Justin Goodhart, here with my co-host Sean Maples. Our goal is to bring in amazing people to give you world-class tips in movement, mobility, strength training, gymnastics, parkour, nutrition, wellness, stress management, and basically anything that's going to make your body better so your life will be better. Our motto here is be healthy to be strong. Be strong to be useful and live long to maximize that usefulness because the longer and stronger you're able to pursue your highest purpose, the better every single person on the planet will become and we want that for you. All right, everyone. I am just amazingly excited and honored to have Kit Lachlan on the show with us today. I'm here with Kit and my co-host, Sean. Kit is an international author, speaker, teacher and I think just generally a a renaissance man really kind of the Leonardo da Vinci of stretching uh, if you will (laughs) he's done a lot of really cool stuff at a high level in a variety of fields he's the creator and founder of stretch therapy which really spans that continuum in stretching from rehab to performance enhancement he also teaches stretching and movement workshops around the world has presented to physiotherapists, nurse, doctors, chiropractors, you name it. He's consulted for elite athletic teams from many sports throughout Australia, was like a stress management consultant for years, co-teaches meditation retreats in Australia and Southeast Asia. And a little fun fact for you, he wrote, produced, and directed The Comeback, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger in uh, like 1980. So a little little factoid for you. And really... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, like like Ryan Hurst of GMB Fitness said, if you don't know Kit, then you don't know stretching. So I'm just thrilled beyond belief to have him on the show today. Kit, welcome to the show. Huge honor having you here. I tried to cover the main stuff, but is there anything else you'd like to add to that? No, no, that's way more than enough. That's <laughs> enough to get going anyway. All right, all right. Cool. Well, uh, let's dive right in then. Um, can you talk a little bit about your perspective on stretching what makes it unique and how has it sort of developed and grown over the years let me address the last part of that question first that is how it's developed over the years because unlike many systems that are on the planet today we we don't really claim to know anything about what we do i mean it sounds a bit silly to say that possibly but in a field that's just littered with experts we don't really claim to be experts at all and the reason is that Compared to, say, strength training or aerobic training, and I have a background in both of those. I was an Olympic lifter, not a very good one, uh, for many years, but I was also um, an elite runner. I was a much better runner than lifter. And so uh, as a result of having exposure in middle-distance running and Olympic lifting, it gave me a unique perspective on physical activity for a start. And then secondly, I, it was only through, it was mostly through the running and the injuries that I had, the many, many injuries that I had, that I realized that my lack of suppleness was probably a major contributing factor. So when I started stretching, I went to um, dance classes, believe it or not. At the age of 27, I was the stiffest guy in the room by a country mile. But I went to dance classes and I went to these, not dance classes per se, but what they call limber classes, which are the warm-up classes that every dance student does first thing in the morning in order to prepare themselves for the day's actual classes. So what we call limber, what they call mobility these days is what these classes were for dancers. But just picture this, you come into this room at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock in the morning, I think it was, beautiful wooden floor, and there's all these bodies sitting in side splits, rolling through side splits into front splits, doing full back bends and all this kind of thing, and that was them warming up for their warm-up class. And that's normal, by the way. 
But me, I mean, I couldn't touch my toes. My body was amazingly stiff in every direction, and I can tell you honestly that, that there was no joint of my body that was naturally flexible. And since I've got to know Tom Myers and Robert Schleip in particular really well, they, uh, Schleip in particular has posited this continuum of fascial tightness um, from Viking fascia, he calls it, where people like me who are just tight in every joint and who are as far away from hypermobile as you can possibly imagine, all the way through to the other end of the spectrum, which he called Balinese temple dancers. Now, the easiest way, he says, to see whether, where you are roughly on this continuum is to pull the skin of the inside of your forearm. So if I do this like this and just grab this skin here and try and pull it off my forearm, see how it won't come off? But mm. when my guy, when my guy, my main guy, Dave Waterman does that, and he's the most flexible guy in our group, when he pulls his skin, it comes away from his forearm about two inches. Now, this is just a rough and ready thing. But when I first met Dave, I realized straight away, firstly, he's a very unusual specimen because he's actually got a lot of power in his body, even though he's flexible. And secondly, he had the capacity to develop full flexibility, meaning full size, but full back bend, all that kind of thing. So anyway, getting back to your original question, and I'll try to make this as brief as possible because honestly, there are just 10,000 you know, alleys that we could go down. When I first started stretching, there was no system that was universally recognized as being likely to be effective for someone who is naturally stiff. There just wasn't one. I mean... If you know yourself, and I don't know what your own physical backgrounds are, but if you're if you were a strong guy, then you got into powerlifting or Olympic lifting or something to do with that end of the continuum. If you were someone loose, maybe you went off to yoga classes or dance classes or something else and you took your own set of attributes in that direction. If you were aerobically talented, like I knew a guy uh, who had never raced before, but when he raced in his first city to surf, he came third. It was the very first city to surf that had ever been run, so it's a long time ago now, but he was naturally gifted aerobically. So where do you think he went activity athletic-wise? He went straight into middle distance and long distance running. However, if you want to have what I call a plastic body, if you want a body, if, if for example, supposing you said to me today, okay, let's go rafting tomorrow. Now, I've never rafted in my life, but I know that I could paddle a canoe or, or however you go down however you go down the rapids or if you said let's go climb up a mountain tomorrow I could do that too I'm not particularly good at any one thing but I can do most things and so we're talking about if you like and I know Ido speaks about this as well but we've been talking about this specialized generalization way before well before Ido drew breath actually but we are we are the generalists in this area and we've been doing it for a very, very long period of time. The other thing to, that's important to mention is that my system started through my own experimenting on myself and it continues today in exactly the same way. So when I first discovered the Contract Relax method, uh, this is how it happened. I was in Japan. I was a living student at a martial arts dojo and I was having a workout at a local ward gym. Every, every ward has a gym in Japan and the membership's very inexpensive. Uh, I was sitting next to some, I think it was leg extension machine or something like that, and I had my legs apart and I was trying to work on the pancake. And I just reached forward and held the machine and pulled myself towards it and pulled back at the same time. So I was doing an isometric contraction. Now, I'd never heard about this or read about this, <clears throat> but I could feel straight away 
as soon as I did that contraction and then used my arms to pull myself a bit more deeply into the stretch, I went past the point that I'd stopped at only a moment before. Now, I'm a researcher, as you probably know. We've mentioned that in the introduction, but I did, I've got a master's degree in science and I did five years of fully funded um, PhD research at the university as well. Um, all that stuff's on my website. And back pain was the key case study. But the thing is this, when I actually got myself into that academic environment and started <clears throat> trying to find out exactly what it was that I'd been drawing on in my own training, that's when I came across the PNF handbook, as you've probably heard it called, the Proprioceptive Neuromuscular Facilitation Handbook, <clears throat> which a lot of people think they know about PNF stretching, but in fact what is surprising if you go back to the original textbook is there's almost no mention of stretching in the book. Hmm. The book itself is meant to be, it's a, a, a book of patterns, movement patterns, to re-educate the cerebrally and or spinally injured in the population. And what they are is a set of manual therapist-applied techniques. In fact, it was developed by a doctor and three nurses at an institute in the U.S. And what they would do, supposing someone had just come out of a, or was recovering from a car wreck and was paralyzed from the neck down, not an uncommon thing, these people would take that person and they would help them to roll on their side, help them to get one arm underneath, help them to sit up and then eventually to stand up. And that would be a, what they call one of their spiral diagonal patterns. And in fact, that the textbook is just hundreds of those kind of patterns. And on page 98, I recall, there was mention of four or five techniques that they had used with these people to improve their range of movement. And that's where everyone's understanding of PNF stretching came from. But there was absolutely zero detail in that, in that um, handbook about how to do stretching. No detail whatsoever, just mentions of five techniques, contract, relax, hold, relax, agonist, antagonist, and a couple of others. So, what, so what, what was the name so, of that so book again? The Proprioceptive Neuromuscular Facilitation Handbook. I can send you this by email later. PNF but look, it, it will be, it'll be useful, useless, I should say, to your, to your audience because it has no details on stretching in it. I took that idea, the PNF idea from that core book, and it was only a sentence, a sentence in one paragraph, Mentioning the, the we mentioning the different approaches, and I applied that PNF technique, the contract relax technique, or what they call the hold relax technique in the original textbook. I applied that to all of Iyengar's poses in the book called Light Light on Yoga, which is still, in my view, the best textbook on yoga on the planet. It's a a very shoddily bound book. When you open it up, it'll break. The spine will break and the pages will fall out. My copy's in a loose-leaf binder. But anyway, it's still a great book. And what I did is I took apart the major poses and applied this technique to them, and it just made an extraordinary difference to my own experience of living. Gotcha. So over a period of time, I started to teach these things in Japan. I mean, when I went to Japan, my martial arts teachers could not understand how someone who called himself a martial artist didn't have the same kind of flexibility that they have. But most Westerners do not. I mean, there are some Westerners, and certainly Edo students are demonstrating some superb flexibility these days. But the average Western person who spends his or her life sitting at a desk, experiencing their life as stressful, that's a really important part that no one ever mentions. The body simply adapts to the position you hold it in the most. Or, put that another way, if you incorporate movement and other things into your daily life, then the body simply adapts to that. The body's adaptations are what I call motiveless. They, the body, no, there's like no malice. That. 
yeah. there's no there's no malice in what the body does. It is simply responding as best it can to the environment it finds itself in. This is the thing that we live in is the ultimate adaptation machine, mm. which is why we have concert pianists, why we have, you know, all the different all the incredible different things that humans can do. If you think about this from an evolutionary perspective, when a human baby pops out, it can't do a damn thing. It is years and years and years before it can even, in, in the crudest way, take care of itself. Whereas when a, a foal, a, a young horse is born, as you know, within an hour it is walking, trotting, cantering and galloping. Within an hour. I've seen this with my own eyes because I, I grew up in the country. But human beings, well, let me think. My brother's son, he's four now. He is, he is walking and running, yes, and he's started to talk intelligently, but he is completely helpless. Yeah. He needs support. So the thing is this. This is the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that we are the ultimately plastic thing that's born on the planet. Given the right environment or uh, this works both ways too. I mean somebody who's had massive trauma at the hands of a, a pedophile or something like that, they develop in a specific way and they carry those wounds with them forever, very many of them. But someone who's brought up in a good environment and who's encouraged to experience X, Y, and Z, they simply, they take that plastic. I mean, John Locke, the, the Scottish philosopher, spoke about tabula rasa. I'm sure you've, you've read about this, the idea that a human being comes into the world and it's a clean slate or an empty slate. Um, yeah. that's, not, that's not strictly true, but it's truer for humans than it is for any other animals on the planet. Yeah. And so... And so in my own case, I grew up in the country, I, we, we didn't do any of the kind of running around, playing football and all the other things that kids did. However, I learned to ride a horse, um, I learned to ride a motorcycle and how to make things, build things, you know what I mean? Yeah. But none of those things involved any flexibility. Had I been exposed to gymnastics classes or dance classes or yoga classes or something like that during that same period of time, my body would be completely different to, to what it is now, I'm sure of that. Having said that, that does not mean that you are fixed and bound by your environmental conditions currently and your past history. It only only constrains it. It only drives it or gives it a particular shape and flavour. And so, for someone, let's bring the bring the, the conversation back to the here and now. For someone who wants to be able to move like a dancer or have the kind of strength that gymnasts have, or to be able to squat and to snatch and clean the way Olympic lifters do, you have to have the required range of movement to allow that to happen. And doing the activity itself and only that activity is usually the least efficient way of acquiring that range of movement. So what we do is we, and that's what our first program that you you mentioned, the Master, the master of the Squat program, all it is, if you think about it from, from a big picture perspective, not think about the details of it, all that is is a set of challenges for the body which the body can either do, in which case you'll do the movement and it will feel comfortable and good and you'll be exploring, okay, maybe my left ankle's a little bit tight today, blah, 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 or you won't be able to even squat down, in which case you've just uncovered some gold. I need to work on that fundamental movement pattern or another movement pattern. You lie face down, put your hand underneath your shoulders, relax the body and press the shoulders off the ground, so what we call the cobra, cobra pose in yoga or, you know, floor back bend. Um, how does that feel? Where do you feel that? So, for example, most people, when they do that pose, all they feel is a cramping in their lower back. 
And no one ever talks about this in, we like to say there's an elephant in the room. Um, when you do these kinds of things, although when you watch a yogi do those kinds of things or a dancer do those kinds of things, it just looks effortless, right? If that movement pattern is not in your body, that's going to be experienced by the body as a challenge. And if you're tight, it will react by closing up. No, no, no organism has ever reacted to stress by opening, lengthening and relaxing. It just never happens. Hmm. It is yeah. always protective tension. All right, let's take a quick time out for a second. If you want access to information I don't share anywhere else and get instant notifications whenever I post a new video or blog post or podcast, please be sure to go sign up for my mailing list. It takes like five seconds. Obviously, you're not going to get any spam or BS and your info stays private. You'll also get a free ebook called The Movement Manifesto, which is basically 75 essential movement and training principles that have been really critical in my development. You can go do that at wellroundedathlete.net slash tips. All right, back to the good stuff. That's an interesting distinction. Do you mind if we... I've got a, no, some, a lot of questions. I'd like to sort of move on a little bit. Uh, I want to sort of re-highlight what you said there about how the body is motiveless in its adaptations. And so really whatever you throw at it is what... Or whatever you don't throw at it also is what it will adapt to. So, you know, we, we see that a lot. And then really that the human body is just the ultimate adaptation machine. And I think that's that's so key. So it sounds Can like... Can I just... Let, let, let me interrupt and just point out something that's critically important to understand and what differentiates this system from any other that I know of so far. If you're relatively stiff and you try to achieve a new position with your body, the feedback you're getting from your own body is completely inaccurate. When When you go into a new stretch position... When you reach the end of your, you, you are Justin's range of movement or Sean's range of movement, when you reach the end of that, the body responds by experiencing pain, yeah? Yeah. Yes. But you're nowhere near the end of your actual range of movement capacity. You're, what, and this is, again, a unique aspect to our work, and it plays into those two questions you put to me perfectly. When you experience pain at the end of a range of movement, that is simply the end of the range of movement that the brain knows from past experience it can do. And it just feels like me moving my hands around now. It, it just There's just the sensation of the movement. But as soon as you get to the edge of the known world, if I can put it that way, when your map, when you're standing, you're looking into the abyss. That's how the body experiences this. Look, let me give you a perfect example. When we, when we run our stretching classes, we might say something like, okay, Today it's side splits. Now you can just look at the looks on guys' faces. I mean, unless you've got side splits in your body, trying to slide down into side splits is a terrifying experience. And no <laughs> yeah. one ever no yeah. one ever talks about it. That's what we're talking about. We say the elephant in the room is fear. When you start to prod or poke your primal self, and that's what happens when you take yourself to the end of a range of movement in any exercise. It's just side splits is the, the, the good one to talk about because so many muscles are involved. It's not like bending your finger backwards. You know, that, that's just a sensation. When you do that with your legs, that's terror for some people. So we say, okay, that's, that's what we're dealing with. That's the reality of the situation here. So what can we do to reduce that experience in the body so that the brain learns that this new position we're trying to get into is not a threat to it. That's Beautiful. the guts of our system right there. Beautiful. I love it. I and, love it. and it plays into the two things you're talking about, the plasticity 
plasticity is something that has to be explored. It cannot be taught by numbers or or do six repetitions or ten repetitions of X, Y, or Z. This is the, the other massive difference between our system and other systems out there. There are no prescriptions like that at all. There are just challenges. Can you do this? Can you do that? And if you can't do this or can't do this, we'll try this, 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 and this. Little bite-sized digestible chunks of experience which in time lead to the capacity to do X, Y, and Z. It's very simple. We are simply showing this complex system where we want it to adapt and how we want it to adapt. Beautiful. I really love that uh, that sort of analogy that when you're going to end range of motion, you're literally going where your body's never gone before. You're, you're mm -hmm. e entering the unknown world to your body. Absolutely. You're, you're literally staring into the abyss, and, and that, <laughs> that can be fearful. Yeah, I, I like yeah. that. I like that description of it. So it sounds like you sort of came into this world of flexibility and things like that as an adult. So it was not yes. something you did as a child. So I think okay. that offers a unique perspective because a lot of people are coming into this as an adult. So what is and, the and difference? Can I, can, I just, can I just comment on one thing that you said there? In fact, almost every yogi, every dance person and every gymnast that I've known have all started as kids. Mm. And this is one of the problems with some of the systems out there is that they reproduce the kind of conditioning techniques that children use. I, I was working with one coach, for example, who told me that his elite athlete, his lead athlete had at that point when I was watching him 11,000 hours of training in that boy's body and he was only 16. Wow. That boy is going to experience life differently to you two unless you've had an identical background. But here's the thing, those techniques do not work for adults. So let's dive into that in a little bit. So what is the difference between children's bodies and adult bodies and what does that mean about how we as adults should begin to approach stretching, both sort of theoretically but also practically? Oh, practical, look, we're all about practical. If we can't actually demonstrate it or do it or experience it, then I don't think we really have any right to pontificate or talk about it, you know? Yeah. You've got to be, you got to, I mean, that old expression, you have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk, seems to me in any field of human endeavor, there's a lot of truth in that. That's not to say that we can't have theoretical perspectives generated by people outside our, our worlds that might be useful. But in my experience, and I'm speaking here as an ex-researcher, I suppose I'm still a researcher, but just not an official one, um, best practice is usually followed years behind by the research that explains how best practice works. That's my experience, anyhow. Yeah, that's what uh, Charles Poliquin would say. He'd say the leading uh, Olympic coaches are 10 <coughs> years ahead of the research. Yes, I would. I think that's an exaggeration, but certainly five or seven. Look, it's a, a detail, right? Yeah. Okay, so children's bodies, firstly... The turnover, the sort of metabolic turnover in children's bodies is extremely rapid. And so children have absolutely no trouble doing certain kinds of activities seven days a week. And so the normal gymnastics, heavy gymnastics training you know, is five days a week with a half day on Saturday where they you know, flog them with different activities, but it's still six days a week. But if you watch them training, and I've watched them training, it is all playful activity and they do not concentrate on the kind of form that an adult will need to concentrate on. And also, in my opinion, the way children are trained, which is basically just do this, do that, and do something else, so basically a kind of follow the leader thing, most adults simply don't respond well to that. 
see, a child is following directions because he or she trusts the coach, basically, or their parents have said, this is what you're doing this week you, and you, or this month or this year. You've shown some skills at it. Do you want to continue? And the kid says, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. I'll keep doing that. And then that refines into a more structured process later on. But the big difference between children's bodies and adults' bodies is their fascial structure. And also, children are fearless. You're not fearless, I'm not fearless, you're not fearless. That's just reality. And with the, with the development of the ego as an adult, one of the things the ego becomes aware of is that it's vulnerable. When you watch a young gymnast doing, for example, any gymnast who can do a backflip on the floor, a female gymnast now I'm talking about, they can do that on the beam. You get up there on the beam, that thing's four and a half feet or whatever it is off the floor, the floor is a long way down. And all of those skills that you can manifest standing on the floor, I mean, a beam is, is about that wide. It's actually way more than big enough to balance on. It's nothing, not, not like balancing on a... We're doing a lot of balancing practice on fence rails, which are about that round. It, it's it's a, like a highway compared to that. But nonetheless, you're four and a half feet off the floor. Yeah. Guess what? You start thinking about it. It's a, good, it's a really good point, Kit. And I, I teach boys gymnastics. And I will say that the majority of boys are absolutely fearless. You occasionally get one that's you know, afraid of doing inversions, but for the most part, once they're introduced to the movement, all of a sudden it's, boom, second nature to them. When are we doing that next? It was fun. You know? and it, the, this is the key word, Sean. It was fun. Yes, yes. See, it's play. It's play. We call our work, we call our work structured adult play. That's what, that's what our work is all about. But so right. getting, getting back to your boys... When you stretch those young boys' bodies, the tissues you can feel. I mean, if you're a manual practitioner as I am and you work on those kids, and I've worked with lots of young kids, lots of old people and everyone in between, you can feel that those children's bodies have an elasticity or a suppleness that a 60-year-old adult male body just simply has almost none of. Now, what is the difference here? Well, there are two key differences. One is the mental state that's driving the body and the other is the actual substrate, the body itself. Now, let me just elaborate on the, that a little bit, and then I'll shut up for a while and let you ask me questions, because this is also key. This is, this is a fact. What I'm about to describe is a fact, and yet it's little known, and yet I've checked this with many surgeons and doctors, and it's 100% accurate. A guy told me um, of a, an operation he was part of only, only two weeks ago. He said we had this 75-year-old guy come in, and he was all hunched over like this, he said he had such an extreme kyphosis, so curvature in his thoracic spine forward, that when he lay down on the operating table or when he was put on the operating table, his head was nearly 18 inches off the table. Wow. It's not, un not unusual. And his body was completely twisted up. But as soon as that anesthetic hit, and this is key, you've got to listen to this, this is, this is just magic. As soon as that anesthetic hit, the guy's body over a period of two or three minutes just simply straightened out and relaxed completely on the table. Wow. Now, here's the thing. When any adult's body is anesthetized, that body on the table has perfect flexibility up to the range of movement of the joints. Hmm. And in fact, there's a, there's a class of accidents called spontaneous dislocations that happen on the operating table when a nurse or an assistant moves, say, the rib cage a bit quickly and the ribs dislocate from the sternocostal margins or from where they articulate with the vertebra at the back because there is, listen to this, there is no tension in the body. But this, Michael, my friend, 
told me. He said, but the, the fucking incredible thing was when that anesthetic wore off, this guy just curled right back up again like a prawn. Wow. And here's the thing. That is his mind's perception, conception, and experience of his body. His own self is literally nothing more. Emotional self, physical self, same thing. Nothing more than what the brain tells the body to be, what the brain understands itself to be, and its understanding is always inaccurate. That's our system. We hmm. show the brain, aha, aha, I can be like this, I can be like that. Oh, look at that, that oh, fuck, that feels fantastic, and so on and so forth. That's how nice. it works. And all I've done is explore this for, I'm, I'm 60, I don't, can't remember, 60-something now, and I'm still learning it. It is the most exciting thing. We've just reincorporated some 5,000-year-old dynamic martial arts stretching stuff into our routine, and it is changing my body at a rapid rate. And so, look, I'll just say one more thing, and then I'll, then I'll shut up. I'll try to shut up. The body adapts much more quickly than we think it will. Our experience is wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, let me just explain what I mean here. When, when my crew and I, when we started doing men's gymnastics training, following a well-known protocol about three years ago, we all just assumed, I mean, no one spoke about it because we were all doing interesting things together. We were, we were doing a lot of rope climbing and a, and a shitload of stuff that we'd be doing on the strength side because I run something called a monkey gym as well. And it, I mean, any, device, any odd object that you can think about, we've got in there. Um, and we just thought when we started, because all of the guys are your age, you know, in their 20s and 30s, and we thought, okay, well, you know, the old guy will just limp along as best he can and, you know, within a year or two, the young guys are going to be way ahead. But guess what? That just didn't happen. And there's there's nothing exceptional about my body, I can tell you. I mean, it's a, it's a train wreck in lots of different ways. If you saw my spinal x-rays, you'd say, oh, my God, you should be in a wheelchair. I'm not exaggerating. That's what a, that's what a <laughs> chiropractor said to me only a while ago. But the fact is, it, it's all just inaccurate. And, and when we look at an x-ray, we're not actually looking at the body. We're only looking at a very small subset of the system that the body comprises. But anyway, look, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be quiet now, but I'm just saying what we found, and this is what I'm finding with the Chinese martial arts stuff too, the dynamic stuff is affecting my body just as quickly as the other young students. It's not taking time. I can do a, I can stand, in a, stand, for example, on both my feet and I can just bounce my flat hands with my hands in this position here off the ground. Now, it takes me about maybe five or ten seconds to warm up to that level of, of stretch, but it's quick. And here's what most people don't realize. There, there are two completely different stretch receptor systems in the body. One is position dependent, and that's what slow stretching affects, so yoga. And also there's that fascial dimension, which is another layer on our understanding, which no one really understands that much about. And then there are the time and position dependent ones, and that's what all quick activities use. And so have you not, have you not noticed, you can have a yogi, for example, who can sit in perfect um, side splits, but who can't do a side kick. It's not just a strength thing. Those receptors are different. I've seen people who are flexible um, in a static position sense and who do not have good dynamic flexibility. And I've seen much more the other way, people who have awesome dynamic flexibility and who have very poor static flexibility. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. And the reason is those systems are different in the body. We need to train both. So then when you're approaching, again, adult bodies um how do you then start to like change the mental perspective of people and change their physical experience to actually cause the these uh 
got it more got flexibility by, by doing the things that we want to get into but at a level of intensity that the body does not experience as a threat that keeps and coming up again and again it keeps man it, it's the guts of it and and the thing is no one ever talks about this I, people I, just say do this do that no one ever says well, when you get into this position here, where do you feel that? How does that feel? And this is the key question. How can you change that feeling? Because the feeling is the experience. If you're only experiencing pain and discomfort, where's the incentive for the body to open up and adapt along those lines? I mean, it's just not there. This thing protects itself. And, and what's more, this is really cr crucial. All of what I've been talking about in terms of the capacity to relax and so on under anesthetic or how to contact, how to actually remake the maps in the somatosensory cortex, which are our flexibility, all of that is out of conscious control. In our system, we simply use the bones and ligaments and tendons and fascia as the tools to contact and remake the maps so that the experience of doing these things is changed. Beautiful. Uh, you know, I just read this book by Todd Hargrove, who I had on a couple episodes oh, yeah. ago. Um, yep. A guide to better movement. I don't know if you're familiar with with that, but it's he talks about that and how he uses the analogy of the nervous system as sort of an extremely intelligent but overprotective mother, and to open up yes. and unlock this mobility, you've really got to send as much good news as possible. Show that you're responsible and that you can, you know, progressively move into these new ranges, and that it doesn't need to be a fearful experience. You can be allowed on that bicycle without killing yourself. Yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. That is that. I've never read any of Todd's stuff. A lot of my students have spoken to me about his good work, and I and I will in time get into his book. There's no there's no doubt about that. But one of the reasons I don't do that I don't explore a lot of other people's stuff until I actually bump into them in the real world is and this might sound anti-intellectual, but I don't want to be too influenced by other things mm. at this point in my own development. I'm trying to understand things from first principles as much as possible. Having said that, because our stuff seems to be getting some traction here and there, I'm now bumping into people like Todd and and uh, and Ido and, and Coach Sommer and all the other people that I, I actually haven't met Ido yet. I look forward to doing that at some point, but I've met literally hundreds of people who are involved in the things that we're involved in. And it's all come about because they found my stuff interesting or they have something to say on it or whatever. But the thing is it's, it's evolving naturally rather than – look, the big thing is this. This is such a critical thing to, to understand and I, I know you to understand this from what you've already said. But we live in a world where everyone knows all about something. But knowing about something and being able to do it and experience and then – talk about it from the experiential perspective, that is a completely different perspective. And I'm interested in the latter perspective. Look, I'm not anti-intellectual. I know more about the philosophy of science than most people because that was my research area for, well, more than 10 years. I've written extensively about this. Um, I understand physics at a decent level, math at a decent level, and so on and so forth. But the fact is those things have almost nothing to tell us about what we're talking about today. Yeah, and I think that idea that, you know, there's so many people out there that are have information overload that know so many things, but I really, I was reading this book the other day and it it redefined knowing as doing. In other words, yes. if, you, if yeah. you are not doing something, you don't know it. And, and I, I really like that redefinition because it just, 
sort of calls bullshit on all the people that know all these yeah. things but don't do yeah. them. You don't know well, something and, unless you do it. And and there is a further level. If you have the right kind of background, and I would I would say that my own particular very fortunate background is is one example of what that sort of a background could look like. Through your own experience and exploration, you might then be able to articulate some generalized perspective. That's my own gift. I'm not particularly good at any of the things that I can teach. I mean, I'm, I, if, we, if, we, if we posit some sort of conceptual triangle where we have ultimate strength at one corner, ultimate aerobic fitness at another corner, and, and ultimate um, flexibility at the third corner, I'd be right in the middle. But I can do all of those things, you know, to a, a low level of capacity. But the difference is, because I've had so many difficulties in my own body, and I've worked very hard to overcome those difficulties, I now have some understanding of how others might also approach a similar problem set. Beautiful. I'm curious, um, you've mentioned Ido's name a couple of times, and you know, we're talking about an individual's, I guess, need to develop flexibility or need to experience flexibility in the body. So how do you feel about his protocol, his corset protocol for developing flexibility and adding load in order to do that? Well, firstly, I'm not familiar with the corset protocol, but weighted stretching is something we've been doing forever. In the Master the Pancake program that, that, is, uh, that we just released a couple of days ago, one of the things that I'm doing is I've got two benches set up in the corner of the studio and so that my feet can't slide further apart and I've got my legs apart at about, um, about 100 degrees or so, which is the sort of pancake position, right? You should, when you're in a pancake, you should have the legs apart and still be able to hold your feet. That's the, the yoga perspective on this is called Upavista Konasana and that's the, the angle that the legs are set at is the extent to, to which they can be spread apart and you can still hold the inside of your feet. And in fact, that's a more difficult forward bending position than if you can actually sit in side splits because, as you know, if you can sit perfectly in side splits, you simply roll over onto your tummy. Nothing actually gets stretched. But very few people are that flexible. But if your legs are at about that intermediate position, somewhere between 90 and 110 degrees, that's where the maximum stretch on the adductors and the hamstrings at the same time occurs. When your legs are together, like when you're doing a pike, it's all hamstrings. How would you add load to something like a pancake stretch? Oh, easy. Um, you set up the benches the way I described. So you've got two benches in the corner of a room so they can't spread out to the side. And when you stand on the two benches, you've got your feet turned out and you've got one foot against one wall and one foot against the other wall. And, you, and your ass is pointing back into the corner of the room, right? And you take a kettlebell, the, the one I'm demonstrating it on the, on, the, um, on the video, I start with a 16-kilogram kettlebell first and let the weight pull me down to the floor between my legs. I do bent leg versions, straight leg versions, and then I move in between the different angles between one leg and the other. And then I do the same thing with a 24 kilogram kettlebell. That's about where I'm working at at the moment. Cool. Very, very having, effective. Oh yeah, having done this myself, I can tell you that it was, it just revolutionized my, how I viewed flexibility by adding mm. load. It's, it mm. really is incredible. And, I think that anyone teaching flexibility or mobility will be doing this type of, of loaded work um, in, the, in the future. We, we have, honestly, we, we, were so, we were so far ahead of the curve in this stuff, we just didn't realize that we've been doing weighted stretching seriously for 25 years. <clears throat> and, and what's more, 
um, my partner, Olivia, and another guy, Joe Hope, who's a mathematician at the university I was working at, he and she together, because they, they're both, they both had very uh, well-developed calf muscles but incredibly tight calf muscles. And so they developed something they call pre-exhaustion stretching, which we're going to unleash in the world, on the world in the next six months or so. Mm-hmm. What that is, is you absolutely flog the muscles that you're going to stretch. And what they would do is they'd do multiple repetitions with as heavy weights as they could, for example, in a heel raise exercise. Mm-hmm. So just like the bodybuilders um, stretching or strengthening, I should say. And they would work that muscle to failure, one leg at a time, and then they do a single leg dog pose, which is also one of our signature exercises, and they work the stretch while the muscle's in a completely flogged state, and they both have flexible ankles now, that's all I can say. And mm-hmm. they, they were people who, in whom no stretching technique touched their calf muscles at all. Here's another aspect of our work. Um, we have a million tools in the toolbox because the cookie cutter approach just doesn't work. I can tell by looking at, the, at your two bodies just via Skype, you actually need different approaches to stretching. And I can see that in just in your face. Now, you might think I'm bullshitting you, but I'm not. Your bodies are quite different. I can see that. And I haven't even seen them yet. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so why, why, why should we – where does fiction come from that, you know, four sets of, you know, a figure four exercise done, you know, five times, that's going to give you internal rotation in the hips? It's bullshit. It's not, it might work for you and it might not work for you. And so our whole approach is we'll try this, see what it feels like, and then try this to modify the experience. And if that doesn't work, try that. And if that doesn't work, try something else. Yeah, I love that idea of building your toolbox. I think that's so important for anything, whether mm. you know your warm-ups or your strength training, your flexibility, your mobility training. I consider that really every great coach should do that, and then every great individual, every great mover, you know, physical culturist, whatever you want to call them, should have then their own toolbox for their own bodies. I think that is so key. So can we talk a little bit about, I mean, you said we all need individual approaches, but what do you see, what are some maybe ranges for the frequency and duration of the stretching you use, maybe like in in the course of a week? Well, the first thing is, and again, Ida was hardly the first person to say this. I mean, what's his saying? Uh, move every day, I think is his saying. Well, shit, of course. I mean, that's just so, so obvious. We have to move every day. Well, we're moving every day even if we're static or we're sitting on a couch. That's a form of movement too, right? It's a non-movement. Isometric. I, <laughs> well, unfortunately, normally. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, of course we have to move every day. So if we are going to move every day and if there's benefit and utility in moving, then it's worth thinking about, okay, we've only got so much time in our normal daily lives. If we're going to move, what is going to comprise that movement and what's going to give me – my friend Paul Check says this perfectly. He said, what's the best bang for the buck exercise? Now, the full squat position is an excellent bang for the buck exercise. There's not a day goes by. Well, I use a squat toilet. I mean, I built one myself last year and wrote about it extensively. The squatting position is a fundamental position, but there are also many other fundamental positions which the squat won't affect at all. For example, the standing lunge is another fundamental position because it's the template, the movement template for running and jumping. And so we need to do a full squat, we need to do a lunge of some sort, we need to do some kind of chest opening or thoracic extension movement, and there are a whole, you know, a bunch of other things. And so 
we would not make it, we would, again, this is kind of like the, I'm anti the sets and reps activity. We wouldn't say you have to do this, this and this every day. But if you expose yourself to a range of those movement challenges, say over a week or a month, you'll know straight away which are the ones you need to do. They're the ones you can't do or the ones that feel uncomfortable in your body. And of course, what do people capitalize on? Here's a classic one. If I ever go and teach a class in a yoga studio and those yogis come in, what do you think is the first thing they stretch when they all sit down? Or dancers? Hamstrings. Hamstrings. What is the muscle group they least need to stretch? Hamstrings. Hamstrings. <laughs> but they want, to, they want to look flexible, right? Now the whole the, the, the role of the mind in all of this is something that's not adequately explored in my view. So look, you need to you need to if you really want to you know that old marine saying, if you want to be all you can be, and I'm, I'm using it in its widest and deeper sense here, then you must firstly you have to have courage. I'm, I mean that seriously. You have to have the courage of looking at yourself face on and seeing what you what you and your body actually need, not what you want yeah. necessarily. Now, in time, the needs and wants, they, they become much closer together. So in my body, for example, backward bending is absolutely fundamental. And so I do some most days. Why do I do it? Because I suck at it. I have to do it. I have to do it. And I'm getting older. And as the body gets older, if the body getting older, by the way, it's the guy who is demonstrating front splits on the back of my book, when, he took, when we took that photograph of him, he was 66 years old, and when I first met him, he couldn't touch his toes. Now, in that photograph, his hips are square. Now, I say to you, Sean, your boy's doing front splits. How many of them can sit in front splits with square hips? One Not of them. Not too many. <laughs> one, that's right. It's See, one. just one. And, and so here's the thing. When I first met Eldon, he's a scientist. Um, he won't mind me talking about it. When I first met him... He was utterly rigid, um, at both as a personality and a physical body. But he, he had guts, he had courage, and he looked at what his body was like at that age, whatever it was, 59, I think, something like that, or 58. And when he started coming to classes, he very quickly, really smart guy, very quickly realized, he, oh, shit, this is, I need this, I need this, 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 and this. And he just sieged it. He worked on those things. Next thing you know, two, three years down the road, he's living in a different body. Now, most people who are doing the kind of strength training and skills training that we're interested in, they don't devote anywhere near enough time to their mobility and flexibility work. In fact, usually it's a bit like ab work in a, in a conventional bodybuilding gym. It's what you throw in at the end of the workout because you know you've got to work on your abs, right? But they're not serious about it. The mind's somewhere else and it's just kind of like a token thing. Okay, I'll just do a few set of crunches at the end. Now, stretching, in my view, is something that needs to be done at the end of a skill workout, not at the beginning. So when we do our, whether we're doing a, working with Olympic lifters, whether we're working with people who are doing gym training for different things like gymnastic strength training, we'll do the stretching session at the end and it won't be the parts of that person's body that they want to stretch necessarily. It'll be what they know from past experience, different workouts, what they need to stretch. And if someone actually has that you know, balls-in, gutsy approach to actually confront their own shortcomings in their body, they can transform themselves within a couple of years. That's a very important point here. Robert Schleip told me, just a quick digression here, all the body turns its own tissues over at different rates. The slowest material to turn over in the body is the enamel in your teeth, but each atom that comprises the enamel in your teeth is actually different roughly every seven years or so. Your stomach lining literally turns itself over every 48 hours. 
the gut lining turns itself over in over, I think it's four or five days, something like that. And the body digests all these components and reuses them. Same if you're a runner, you destroy blood cells in the bottom of your feet, those blood cells get recycled. The half-life of fascia in the body is about six months, which means that if you incorporate movement and the kind of stretching and strengthening approach that we recommend, and I've got to speak a bit about developing strength at the end of range of movement in a moment too, because that's completely different to the weighted stretching we're talking about. But if you uh, employ these training systems, whether it be Edo systems or my systems or one of these other movement slash flexibility-based systems, and you do it where you're courageous enough to confront your own shortcomings, you'll, you'll be living in a different fascial body within two years or so. We found that two years is about it. So there's, there is really hope for people, even if they get into this as adults, even though, like you said, I think it kind of goes deep. Like you've got to have the courage, you've got to have the clarity yes. of, of what issues you're facing and you've got to approach them head on. And that's honestly, that's hard to do in, in your body. That's probably yeah. the easiest area to do it is physically, but you know, yep. you with relationships, with your personal development, I think that's just everything. Yeah, it's it's uh, it can be hard, but it's absolutely well. Look, uh, do, worth do, it. do you want do, do you want to live a lie, or or do you want to actually live authentically? That's what it comes down to. Yeah, you know, and at my, and at my age, I, I in fact I was like this when I was twenty. I'm conscious that my next breath could be my last. Yeah, I'm not fu- I'm not fucking around. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But but I'm also also having the most amazingly good time at the same <laughs> time too. So yeah. it's, a, it's a question of what you want. And look, we used to say this uh, when I did a lot of strength training. Um, I was they used to call me the Phantom Trainer or the Phantom is what they used to call me. And the reason was that I'd be in and out in less than half an hour. Now I'd go into the heavy weights room, which is an Olympic lifting gym. I'll tell you a quick story. About ten years ago, I was attacked by some mystery virus, and in fact, I was carted off to hospital I was in I was in intensive care for 10 days and when I came out of when I came out of hospital I'd lost I'm not I'm not exaggerating this to make a story I had lost in that two weeks which included the 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 week leading up to hospitalization I'd lost 22 kilograms oh I believe it I believe at a body weight at a body weight of 80 kilograms so that that means that's one quarter of my own mass I consumed myself (laughs) over one quarter right wow okay so and then I spent the next six months, they never found out what the virus was. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. They never found out what it was. But when I came out of hospital, I was sleeping, resting, inert for 16 to 18 hours a day. And my, my partner looked after me. I couldn't, do, I couldn't do a thing. That lasted for six months. Wow. Now, when I first, I remember this clearly. It was January the 5th. It was exactly 10 years ago or nine and a half years ago. January the 5th, I walked into the heavyweights room and I walked up to the squat rack and there was the, the empty bar sitting on the rack. And I put it on my shoulders, set myself up and dropped down into a full back squat. And I did four repetitions with the empty bar. And I was flat on my back for another week. That's wow. how weak I was. Wow. But, but I kept doing it. I'd have one or two sessions a week only. And I would only do back squats or front squats. I, I'm, my body's better designed for front squats. And I, in that year, I did my best ever back squat, best ever front squat, and I put on I, my body weight went up to eighty eight kilograms. Wow! So I went from went from sixty seven kilograms to eighty eight. Now people will tell you that's impossible. When you're recovering muscle that you used to have, trust me, it's possible. And that's two very rapid sessions. I'd be in and out in 
usually half an hour. And mm-hmm. all I would do is back squats or front squats and I put weight back on my shoulders, traps, arms, everything. Wow. And that's the only exercise I did in that year apart from walking around. I mean, I was a basket case and I had zero flexibility. When I came out of hospital, my body had literally reverted to what it was when I first started stretching. Couldn't touch my toes, couldn't reach my fingers past my knees. As for getting legs apart, that's the last range of movement to come back. It's only coming back now. So you, that's, that's such an amazing story. I mean, you, so 10 years ago, you said, so you were like early fifties, right? Yeah, that's right. So you, I mean, I just think that's such an amazing story of the body's ability to adapt and rebuild. You literally rebuilt your body from nothing. Yes. And And, at 50 years old and. And it was a different shape. I didn't, when I was an Olympic lifter before, I didn't have big glutes. Uh, that was, I was one of those quad lower back type lifters. You've, all, you've seen, yeah. seen them. Because my form was so much better, when I started, I couldn't do a damn thing. I just couldn't do anything. When my body developed, honestly, it's a bit like, and I, there were no drugs involved here. It was a bit like Lance Armstrong's body. When he had testicular cancer and he, de- he, he redeveloped his body, you might recall, it was actually a different shape when he redeveloped it. That's absolutely possible that my body, my glutes are well developed now, hamstrings are way well better developed than they used to be and it was, was nothing to do with what I did. It was just by having good form and knowing what good form looked like in the in the deep mm-hmm. squat, that's how the body developed. It developed exactly as it needed to develop. Beautiful. Look, this, this we live, I, I tell you this and I mentioned this once before, but we do live in an adaptation machine. We simply need to know how to tweak it to adapt in the way that we want because at the moment the body is adapting unconsciously as I mentioned before in a direction that most people don't want right it's adapting whether you want it or not all the time and so when you when you're clear about that you say okay this is what I need and so I'm going to select from the toolbox these things and we know what they are because we, we've tried to do a Cossack squat and we find we can't get our legs apart or we've tried to do a back bend and we find the hip flexors are so tight my back just goes straight into spasm or I can't get into the snatch bottom position. Why? Because my upper back and middle back is too tight, blah, blah, blah. And you acknowledge that and you say, okay, instead of practicing power snatches, I'm going to get the flexibility I need to actually practice a proper snatch. Or in the case of legs apart, I'm not going to do bad Cossack squats, I'm going to do Cossack squats at my present level of ability and I'm going to pay attention to the shape of the arch, the alignment of the knee, the way to hold the upper body. Now all of those things individually are known but our system I think puts them together and says try this, try that, try something else by the end of the session you'll know exactly what your body needs and this is the most efficient way to get that. Awesome. Kit, I've just, I've extremely, I've loved this conversation. It's been very inspiring for me. I'm pretty sure I'm going to go sign up for one of your workshops right after we get off the call <laughs> yep. here. Um, please, do, please do. I, I, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to meet both of you and I, I really hope that we can. And we, we've got workshops coming in the US later this year and uh, also, also in Europe. We've got running a strength training workshop and an into the stretch workshop in Piacenza, one in York, one in London. You would be so very welcome. I I love it. Do we have? I want to be respectful of your time. Do we have just another couple minutes here? I've got one yeah, more question. Of course. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the jaw and the feet because I think those are two areas that can have some really interesting cascading effects in the rest of the body, and they're very yes. little thought about. You know, most modern people have 
had their foot in a sort of foamy cast for their entire lives. So can you talk about the jaw and the feet and, and why they're so significant? I'd be delighted to. You're actually talking about two of my favorite body parts, by the way. Not that there's any body part I don't like, but let's start with the feet. I mean, logically, from a physics perspective um, and from a body perspective, the feet are the foundation. And I mean, let's let's just let's just explicate just why that's the case. They're the foundations because we live in a sea, an invisible sea of gravity. Everything that we do is working against gravity's tendency to pull us to the centre of the Earth. Once you understand that, you understand a huge amount about what we actually need. And so, in the sea of gravity, working on your jaw muscles will not change your postural alignment. Working on your feet alignment cascades upwards through the body as the body adjusts to that alignment. Now, the most common problem in today's world, and Nike published figures on this 20 years ago, and nothing's changed, about 70% of runners they claim are pronators, that is to say the ankle rolls inward under load. And so we, I've got a 22-minute video on YouTube, it's a free download, um, it's called the foot sequence, where we literally start with spreading the toes, we start with bending the toes in all directions, we start with aligning the arch, we start with the feeling of how the body's weight is positioned on the foot, and we go from there. Every knee problem that I've ever encountered has its genesis in foot alignment and or hip restrictions. And look, just think about the body from a, in this fashion. The ankle has a huge range of movement. The hip has a huge range of movement. The knee only moves in two planes. Mm. It's exactly the same in the shoulder. The shoulder has an incredible range of movement. The wrist has an incredible range of movement. And the elbow only moves in two planes. Elbow problems and knee problems are the result of problems further up or further down that kinetic chain. It's as simple as that, mostly. And I have a friend who's a knee replacement surgeon, and he told me he has never done a knee replacement where the lateral part of the knee is worn out. It's always the medial side of the knee that's worn out. Interesting. And so if you look at this foot sequence, we actually take, we show people that the alignment of the arch is not a property of the foot itself. It's actually, it comes from the external rotators. When you stand on your feet, if you lift your toes up and stand on your feet, and this sequence takes you through all this, most people have more of the weight on the joint behind the big toe and the heel than they do on the outside of the foot. And so what we say is, without looking at your feet, try to put some weight on the outside of your feet. And straight away, you'll see the legs externally rotate. That's cued by the external rotators. And when you externally rotate the thighs in the hip joint, guess what? The arch pulls up off the floor. It's hardwired into the body, all this stuff. We just need to wake it up. And the reason it's asleep is exactly the reason you mentioned before. The proprioceptors as sense organs are most numerous in the soles of the feet and second most numerous in the palms of the hand. Hardly surprisingly, this is how we get traction on the world. It's the feedback that we need. And so when you externally rotate, when you actually, let's put it this way, when you feel your foot in the right position on the ground, the proprioceptors are how we feel it. When you separate the proprioceptors from the experience of standing, walking, running, jumping from the world by wearing running shoes, something I haven't worn for eight years now. I've been wearing five fingers since I first discovered them and I do a whole lot of stuff barefoot as well. All our workshops are done barefoot, full stop. What we've done inadvertently by developing the shoe is that we have insulated ourselves from the most important proprioceptive response the body has. That's the ones from the feet. The body, look, here's how it works. Remember that adaptation I was talking about before? If you take away stimulation, the body simply reverts 
to a lower energy configuration. And the lower energy configuration in alignment in the human body is pronated ankles and anteriorly tilted pelvis and a slumping middle and upper back and a head forward posture. That's the low energy configuration of the body. Look, when you get excited or you go for it, he's illustrated perfectly. When you get excited about something, what happens? Boom, you straighten up immediately. When you sprint, all the alignment mechanisms of the body are working perfectly. You don't have to tell yourself to cue your core or, or strengthen or, you know, make the arches work properly. It happens by itself. Now, the trick is to have it happen at a level of intensity that doesn't injure the person who owns the body that's half asleep. That's our stuff. It's about scaling that. And so I go walking every day out the back of my house. And next time we talk, I'll show you a picture of what it looks like. But out the back of my house, right over there is a mountain. Well, it's called a mountain. It's only a couple of hundred meters vertical height. But it's rough. It's a, a bush mountain. My partner and I go walking there every day. Now, it's not, we're not going for a walk around the block on concrete wearing running shoes, thinking that we're doing something good for our body. We're actually crawling over rocks under something walking along um, fire trails where they're slippery. And we're coming down this hill, for example, where these little pebbles on this hard clay base, you better, you better pay attention or you could be skating right at the bottom of that hill. And we do that every day. And guess what? It wakes the body up. This thing craves the right kind of stimulation. And whatever you give it, it will adapt to. So now, now talking about the jaw. I have a jaw sequence on YouTube too and it's a free download and I've had people say they've done that those four or five exercises and it changed the way they feel on the spot. That's accurate. Listen to this. Stretching your neck muscles and your jaw muscles will change your mental state. Stretching your calf muscles will not. But just think about this for a moment. When you look at someone like the way you two are looking at me now, the way I'm looking at you, how much meaning is contained in this part of the body. If you want to know what someone's thinking and feeling, you don't look at their quads. <laughs> no, this is, but, but, think, but I mean, I know it's a funny thing to say, but uh, no, but it's get, just get the deep truth of it. I mean, it's oh yeah, profound. oh yeah, I love that quote. I love that quote. And so, getting back to the jaw, the jaw, in a physics sense, just happens to. It's a, do you know it's a gliding, sliding joint? There is no position that the mandible sits in the jaw joint. It can be forward, backwards, up, down. It's completely mobile. Where it sits is a function of the balance of forces around that joint, and that's tension. If you grind your teeth at night time or clench your teeth or all the other things that the dentists do, the first thing they want to do is to reshape your bite. That is bullshit. The bite is only a function of tension. You, what's the best approach by far, and certainly the least invasive approach, is to work on the tension patterns first and then see how the jaw sits. Because this joint is the last joint the body has to resolve forces which begin in the feet. Interesting. The last joint. And so it, also, it, sorry, one more thing. Your attitude to life, the way that you think, the way that you operate, is literally reflected in your jaw. You can see it. You can see it right there. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed well, resistance. That's what we're looking at. Resistance, baby. No, I'm, I'm not being critical here. I'm exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty. I carry a lot of tension in my jaw. Been stretching it lately, this, though. This is what's so cool about this stuff. If we just acknowledge, okay, there's this thing, what do I do? How do I get from here to there? We identify the state that we want, and then this is, the, this is where intelligence and pain. Sean, playing back to a question I never fully answered of yours before, 
the difference between children's bodies and adults' bodies is far more than their fascial system and their muscle system. It's about how they think. They are not rigid. There is much less resistance to opening in different ways in a child than there is in an adult. An adult will give you 10,000 reasons why they can't sit in tight splits, right? It's the structure of my hips. It's my genetic inheritance. It's what, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's endless. And this is the thing for most adults. Reality is not what they're interacting with in the real world. It's what's going on between the ears. Well, direct experience will not let you get away with bullshitting yourself like that. <laughs> and so what we do is we gently and supportively create the environment where that perspective is remade, where the experience is remade. And guess what? The perception changes as a result of the experience changing. We are working on some really deep stuff here using what looks like stretching exercises. It's so cool. It's so much fun. Wow. My mind is blown. I just feel like I said, I feel, <laughs> yes. I, mean, I enjoyed that so much. I really loved uh, the directions and the many, many things we discussed. Um, I, I want to be respectful of your time. So let's go ahead and, and wrap it up. We can sure. bring you on again sometime in the future. Um, but man, I, I think people are really going to get a lot out of this. One more quick thing. What's one book and, and one general piece of advice that you would give to people? What one book you're reading or really would recommend to people and just advice for movement, for life, whatever. You can keep it pretty short if you'd like. Well, you've probably noticed that's kind of a difficult thing for me. <laughs> well, as for books, well, I, I hate to sound as I'm blowing my own trumpet, but you could do a lot worse than starting with one of mine. I mean, I've written a few of them, but, you know, if people are interested, they can find out that stuff. I don't want to recommend my own stuff. Um, I can say, I can tell you, though, that in, in my own field, the definitive book has not yet been written. I, I do have hmm. a manuscript for my next book, and I will be. that's what next year's work is about, is actually bringing that to fruition. But I would start with stretching and flexibility for most people, or if you're not as able overall, I'd actually start with my book, Overcome Neck and Back Pain, because it uh, it deals with back things, leg things, hip things, shoulder things, neck things. I mean, you asked me, one of the questions you asked me was about grace in the body, why we, why we think grace and ease in the body is so important. Mm -hmm. Well, let me explain that now, and that might be a good way to, to finish up, although I can, I can keep talking forever. The reason we've identified the goal of our work as being grace and ease in the body is that because although everyone loves that idea, when I look around, if I sit in a, in a, in a mall and look around, I don't see it anywhere. And, and someone, some young kid who's wanting to start off in gymnastic strength training or you know, the stuff that we're all involved in, um, but they've got, you know, they've got a shoulder issue like people use, love to use the word issue these days. I call it a problem, but people like the word issue for some reason. <laughs> or they've got knee issue. Oh, my very strong advice is, well, don't waste your time trying to, to do muscle-ups when you've got a shoulder issue. You need, the, the shoulder issue didn't develop by itself. It's not the hand of a malicious God reaching down saying, I'm going to give this guy rotator cuff syndrome. No, it's something in your movement pattern or your daily life habits which has created a, an adapt adaptation in the body which you're currently experiencing as a problem. It's an adaptation, baby, just the same as all the other adaptations we want to get but it's a maladaptation why because it hurts us and so the reason we call the goal of our work grace and ease in the body is because it, it's not very common 
And it's what I want for my own body. I want to be able to do everything, actually. And so we start with that. And, of course, from there it can be taken to elite-level flexibility. It can be taken to elite-level strength. It can be taken to any one of the manifestations of this extraordinarily plastic thing that we live in. As I mentioned before, some of us are going to become concert pianists and some of us become movement specialists and others become academics. But we're, we're all adapting in our own way. If we want to adapt with grace and ease and have the experience of being alive a pleasant one, largely, we're going to have to pay attention to the things which are just niggles now, pain a little bit later, and then an injury a little bit later down the road if you don't do something about it. How do you find out what these are? You expose the body to a range of gentle challenges and with your awareness fully in the body, asking yourself the key question in our work, which is, how does this feel? What does this feel like? How can I change this feeling? The complete antithesis of doing five sets of exercise X. Yeah. Completely different approach. It looks the same. If you came into our gym, watch people working, they would be doing the same stretching exercises that you've seen before, maybe one or two new ones. But that's the, the position the body is being put into is the, honestly, I won't say it's the least important part of our system. It's important. But the most important part you can't see as an observer. You can only experience it internally. Mm, brilliant stuff. I, I'm i super excited to to look more into your work, attend a workshop, pick up your book. Um, so we, I'll post, again, for everyone listening, I'm going to post show notes where you can find out more about Kit, maybe get his book. I think they're all available on Amazon, or at least a couple of them are. Um, and then as well to uh, some I, of his... May, may I just interrupt and say, don't get the books. And I'll explain why. Firstly, the Amazon versions of the books are out of date and they're going to be expensive. Okay. We, we hold all the remaining stock of our own books. Long story, global financial crisis, publishing company in crisis, contract for my next book was uh, was rescinded and all of the stock of my previous three books was returned to me at their cost. I mean, it was the most amazing deal for, for an wow. author. Wow. So, but we are in the process. In fact, I'm working on this today when we, in fact, I'll start um, this morning, I'll be releasing the book Stretching and Flexibility in both a PDF version and DRM-free, by the way. All of our products are DRM-free. We don't want people to copy them to their friends, but if they do, we, we take the Bill Riley position. We just regard it as free advertising for us. And, and our mastery programs, they're $10, those uh, Master the Squat, Master the Pancake. They're also DRM-free. You can download them in HD. You can download them in standard definition for your phone. So you've got the information with you forever. But the books are going to be released in PDF version, and this is really exciting, print-on-demand version. So if you order it from Amazon, it'll take about a month, I think, for them all to be up there, maybe six weeks. But if you order them then, um, it'll be second edition or fifth edition, respectively, so you'll know which edition they are. In the meantime, you could do a lot worse than spending a couple of hours on my YouTube channel because that, firstly, there's about 115 videos there and they're all free. Some of them are 20 minutes long too, by the way, and a lot more detail than most of the mobility and stretching videos that you'll see. And then there are my Vimeo On Demand channel, which is my latest baby, and that's honestly, Vimeo On Demand is, is a great platform for us. So look, I, I, I'm sorry I've hogged the conversation hideously, I, I know, um, but I... I <laughs> I just there's so much that I want to want to share with you guys and oh Kit, not, I've I've loved it. We're very grateful. We're not we're not about the money. We want to get the information out there. What we charge on our Vimeo channel is just enough to keep the whole enterprise going. It'll never make me rich. And my girlfriend's always saying, 
get off the computer for God's sake. Let's go and do something. Kit, that was that was amazing. I really enjoyed that conversation. I feel like it it could go on. I'm at a standing desk though, so I've been standing still for like an hour and twenty <laughs> Good. minutes. That's excellent. <laughs> um, so I need to I need to do some squats or something. But uh, we'll definitely bring you back on the show again to recap. You can find Kit on YouTube. His website, Kit Lachlan, which is uh, his last K I T L A U G H L I N dot com. Um, and then, yeah, he's on Vimeo, uh, Stretch Therapy, I believe, on Facebook. Uh, you can yeah. find him there. And, yeah, definitely check out his site. Like I said, I'll post uh, show notes so you can find out upcoming workshop and stuff like that. Huge honor having you here, Kit. We'll definitely bring you on again. Um, I'm I'm excited to, to meet you at some point in the future, as is Sean. And, uh, yeah, thanks so. I, again. I hope we can. And we can, we can do some fun things together, I think. Thank you so much. Let me respond to your, your closing. Thank you so much, seriously, for giving me the opportunity to talk to your audience indirectly and to talk to you too directly. But I, it, I really would like to meet up with you and to work with you in the future. And I know it's conventional to say that at the, at the end of you know, situations like this, but I mean it. And whatever little things I can help you with or, or show you, I, I will be delighted to do that. That's what we do. That's our program. We're all going to be dead soon, let's face it. Okay, I'm sooner for me probably than you two, but it's going to happen to all of us. So why not? My philosophy, I'll, I'll sum it up, it's very brief. Do some good, have some fun, make some money. Yeah. <laughs> Words <laughs> to live by, folks. Let's, let's end it on that note. Do some good, have some fun, make some money. And if you want to connect with me, just check out wellroundedathlete.net slash connect, and you'll find all the links to my social media sites, email, YouTube, everything like that. Thanks for listening. I hope you found something useful. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes. And if you leave a rating or review, it's going to help me out a ton and help other people find the podcast easier. If I get at least 20 people to rate and review the show, all of them are going to be entered into a drawing to win a free month of custom strength and mobility programming from me, which I usually charge over $200 for. Here's how to enter. Take a screenshot of your review and email that screenshot to justin at wellroundedathlete.net. Also, if you enjoyed this show and share it on Facebook or Twitter, whether that's to all your friends or just one, email me a screenshot of that and I'll send you a PDF of my 10 must-have books that took my training and movement to the next level. And if you have any suggestions for guests you'd like to have on the show, be sure to email me them as well. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate the support. I hope you found something useful. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 